Hello, I'm Rachel Schusterman, and you're listening to episode 34 of A Positive Podcast. Today's podcast is an episode that I am so excited about, super passionate about, and so excited to bring to all of you today. It's an idea that I have been living with for quite some time now, and it's really helping me navigate many challenging moments and events in my life. The amazing part is that everyone that I've shared this concept with has responded in kind and said to me, Rizal, this has been so helpful and this mindset has really made an impact for me as well. So I think each and every one of you listening will find an example in your life where you've seen this to be true and you're gonna resonate deeply with this idea. As I was sitting down to record this podcast episode, I actually was dealing with a mini challenge for one of my children with schooling And at the time, I had no idea how it would turn out. Baruch Hashem, it did turn out okay. But at that moment, I could feel the discomfort of the unknown sitting on my heart. I could feel it in my belly. Yet, when I tapped into this concept and this mindset, I was able to say, Rizal, this isn't an emergency or a crisis. We're going to figure it out. We'll figure out what our next step should be. Just breathe. And I'm getting better at it, slowly, like all of you. I'm not perfect, but it's a process. And as you probably notice at this point, Today's episode's title is There's No Such Thing as an Emergency. And in this episode, I sit down with my husband, Nechemia Shusterman, and together we are talking with an incredible human being. My husband calls him a tzaddik, Sonny Perlman. He has been a rock to us personally during very difficult times, and I know he's done the same for so many hundreds of others as well. Just to give you a brief insight into Sonny, I'm going to read his bio. Sonny has been working in the field of addiction for over two decades. And for the past 16 years, he's been the director of Our Place New York, which is a full-service drop-in center for young men struggling with addiction, mental health issues, and many other difficult life situations. Sonny has experience working with mentoring, foster care, as well as working in two inpatient rehabilitation centers. Most recently, Sonny has been the clinical director of Our Village, a sober living, a high-end sober living facility in Rockland County, with a long-term success rate that is second to none. And Sonny was educated in the New School of Social, Social Research, and has his graduate degree from the Wurzweil School of Social Work. In all the time that he has been working and the thousands of people that he has worked with, Sani says he has not met anyone that was not capable of healing themselves. Just that line alone, that's just a brief insight into who Sani is. He believes in people, which helps them believe in themselves. And in today's episode, Sani shares his powerful mindset, his mindset, mind shift and tool and shows us how we can all do the same. So if you have a difficult time with dealing with challenges and struggles, and who doesn't, then this episode will be very insightful to listen to. I want to just take a moment to thank you all for all of you that have been come, have become a monthly sponsor, supporter of this podcast. I really appreciate your support. If you haven't yet, please consider becoming a supporter by making a small monthly donation to help sustain our future episodes. It can be a donation of $1, $5, $10 a month. All you need is to click on the link in the show notes, and it's that simple. So thanks in advance. Also, if you'd like more information on how to set up a free consultation for positive coaching, you can reach out through my website, apositivecoach.com. There's really so much to unpack in today's episode, so let's get right into it. Here is episode 34. First of all, Sonny Perlman, it is such an honor and privilege to be talking to you. Um, I've been wanting to do this podcast for a while just been waiting for the right time. And I really am grateful that you were willing to come on here and speak with us. And I really appreciate your time. So my pleasure. Glad to be here. Yeah. Um, 
a while ago, about four months ago, my husband listened to one of your podcasts, which is an excellent podcast. To, uh, Brain, brainstorm, brainstorm with Sonny Perlman. Right, brainstorm with Sonny Perlman. I really enjoy the episodes. And my husband is an avid listener. He listens to every episode. And he shared with me that he was listening to one of your episodes and you shared this idea kind of in passing. It was like a sidebar conversation, which kind of usually is my favorite, those off-topic conversations. Right. And he shared this idea with me and I went back and I wanted to hear it for myself. And I went back and listened to it and it really resonated with me. And I realized that actually you had been sharing this concept, this idea with us all along in our own journey. And it was a common theme that you constantly would share with us when we needed some support in our own, you know, our own path. And I think it's something that you kind of have, that you know so well, that it may be even happening subconsciously for you, or maybe consciously, I don't know. We'll talk about that. Um, so you basically share this idea that nothing's really an emergency. If something's an emergency, you call 911 and, <laughs> or Hatsala in from communities, right? So, but otherwise it's not an emergency. And it sounds like a simple concept. Yeah, okay, obviously, but it's a really deep idea. And it's something that I feel like when we're able to tap into that and really kind of um, understand it, it really can change our life for the better. And I wanted to unpack this idea with you and really get to the root of this concept. I know okay. that for me personally, whenever I use this way of thinking, um, it really helps me with any small or large struggle or challenge that I'm dealing with, helps me stay grounded, not overreact. I also wanna say that whenever I share this idea with friends or um, colleagues or anyone that's having their own struggles, they always say to me, oh my God, Rachel, this is so insightful. This has been so helpful. And it's a simple idea, but it's really deep. So if you don't mind, just let's get right into it. Can you explain this idea? Like, Okay, so I actually, it's interesting that you pointed out because I always throw this out as much as I can whenever I talk or on the podcast or talking to parents. And and it, def, it definitely seems like it's an unconscious thing that I'm just saying. Um, but really, it's been a very strong core of the work that I do. That it's actually, I, I would say it's one of my pet peeves, and I'll explain that. Um, that I have to say it. And it's also one of, I think, the greatest tools of helping. So for I'll start with the pet peeve part of it, is that we, our entire um, way of dealing with, the, with kids who are struggling or adults that are struggling or addiction is, has been crisis prevention. The word crisis is thrown around all day, all night. It never stops. There's a crisis hotline, a crisis this, 400 kids are dead. And, you know, like it's it's just straight crisis. Um, one of the mantras we have here in the, like in the sober livings that I run is that there is no crisis. We do not see this as crisis. So the problem with crisis and the beauty of crisis is that if someone is dying, you could do anything in the world to help them and fix them. If there's a crisis, Hatsala could break Shabbos. It could, it could, uh, I don't know, you could give them non-kosher food. You could sell them, you could do anything you want. Anything goes when it's a crisis, which is beautiful, but there's a dark side to that. The dark side is that you're not looking, if something is not a crisis and you're dealing with it like a crisis, then you are going to be going into a topic which, which needs to have very deep thought and introspection and figuring out the core of the issue. And you're going to just deal with it in the way I see it in, in our field 
is like immediately we need to do an intervention and get this kid to a rehab right this minute. And I don't care which rehab it is. I don't care about Judaism. I don't care about any topics besides for save this life right now. What ends up happening is you make a lot, a lot of seriously bad mistakes. The number one mistake that I see is that anybody who deals with the topic of addiction or any kid struggling knows that the most important piece of this is that they maintain their strong, deep relationship with their parents. So when you're in crisis, I could say to my kids, I got to call the cops on you because you're going to die. Now, calling the cops on a kid is a horrific mistake. It literally is saying that I, I, you know, our relationship is over to most kids. It is absolutely a disaster for them because they're they, they, the one safety they have is their parents. And now those people are actually considering them criminals and getting the cops involved. And I'm giving an extreme example, but we're doing this on all things. If we, if we look at any situation like it's a crisis, we have to deal with it like a crisis. Um, so if it is a crisis, so there are situations that we have in, in our field where crisis does exist. Somebody is overdosing on your couch. What do you do? You're going to have to call out Salah. You're going to have to take him to the hospital. And if he's belligerent, you may have to call the cops to, to you know, and even though I could tell you till today, I never call the cops in a situation because it's always misread and always affected wrong. But um, but you're dealing with a crisis. So now the first thing is, is that it's a, when you're dealing with addicts, I'm going to talk about addicts because addicts is, it's, it's, uh, um, okay, wait, that's a dark side. Sorry. I'm jumping to addicts, but let me I, say that. No, before side. you, I want to be, I'm going to interrupt you for one second. I'm yeah. just curious. Do you think that perhaps the reason why we're so into crisis and crisis mode is connected to that idea that like, we know when it's a crisis, we could break Shabbos or we could um, use certain way of thinking and we could approach it in a different angle. So maybe that kind of thinking has kind of, um, I don't know if it's um, changed the way we think, but maybe we're more open to, oh, it's a crisis. Oh, it's an emergency and and tapping into that. Do you think there's any right. truth to that? Um, I think, well, listen, there's probably a lot of layers to this, but I think the biggest reason we consider it a crisis is for fundraising purposes. Oh, wow. And, yeah, so that's a little bit of a, negative i don't want to start this whole podcast very negatively i'm usually a very positive <laughs> person but i think if you get out there and you post online that there are 700 deaths and then you gotta like here take my money save some souls like what are you talking about i will do whatever it takes to help out your organization to help out so there's a little bit of an agenda to let everybody know um, I'll give you an example. My organization really is very, very against ever publishing pictures of kids or publishing pictures of people in, in crisis or someone in bed or posting this guy died or that guy died. We're very, very against it um, because of the sanctity of these kids. And we really don't like doing that. But I can tell you financially it affects us tremendously because all we would have to do is say, um, and, and we have all the time a death or you know, emergencies or the amount of stuff I deal with is, is outrageous. So I, I have stories all day long and all night long. I could tell stories about horrible stories. Um, we never use them and it affects us. It affects us and we have to stick to our guns because let's say our fundraiser is always like, give me some horror stories. Tell me the horror stories. I'm like, I'll tell you a horror story. This guy was struggling. And you know what the best part of that story is? He's doing amazing today. Like, that's the whole story. 
I and and my fundraiser can't stand me for it. So it's it's it it really really is beneficial for that. Now on a more personal level, um, parents especially are feeling completely out of control, and they don't know what to do, and they want to save their their little gingola or their little girl who's struggling and. They don't know what to do. And when somebody gives them a quick fix answer, like all we got to do is intervention, get them to, you know, do all that. There's such a relief to saying, oh, there's a fix to that. Addicts are not the only ones who want instant gratification. Parents also do. I've raised this kid. I worked really hard on this kid. And now this kid is literally dying in my house. I need to do something. And someone says, you ready? Here we go. Emergency. Let's get it. And, and it feels great. It's like that quick hit that you actually went and helped fix this kid. Um, so the danger of seeing it as an emergency is very, very real. But also, it is also missing out on the, the idea of really understanding the depth of what is really happening. So, for example, if you say to kids, um, you, you know, you say to parents, you how long ago this to start? So they'll always say, oh, like last week he started using heroin. And I'm like, no, when did it start? It almost always started when they were like four years old. Like he was always super sensitive. He was always, you know, like when, it, when people made fun of him in school, he was the broken one and the other ones couldn't. Right. So I just to, to finish the point is that that this when I think of addiction and this is a, a topic I haven't really discussed out loud because I don't have enough research behind it to actually back it up. But I see addiction more as a personality disorder than I see it as an actual just regular disorder. Meaning anytime you deal with an addict, you're going to find out that this is how they've been their whole life, or at least since major traumas have happened. Um, so similar to the way, let's say a borderline personality disorder will have you know, their entire life is based on their personality disorder. Addiction is very similar. So if I said, okay, personality disorder, let's lock, call the cops on this person. Everybody would say, it's crazy. This is their whole personality. This is who they are. We have to figure out how to deal with them on a much greater scale um, and figure out the housing and figure out, you know, we're housing me surrounded with the community and the love and the connection and the support and all that stuff. Um, nobody would say, oh my God, he's having, you know, like a borderline personality disorder. He's, he's talking suicidal again, quickly, let's run around, you know, like he does this every single day. Every single day he has a discussion about how he doesn't want to live. Eventually you stop calling the cops and say, take my kid into the emergency room because that is the way they live. So addicts are a much bigger topic than looking at it as crisis. I mean, if you see this as crisis, you will deal with it wrong. Now the question is how to deal with it. That's that's if you want to get into that, we can, but it cannot be dealt with correctly in a crisis mode. Right. So, so the same is true for you know children or teens or adults who struggle with mental health struggles. The same. The, the same. You know, you're using the word addict. I'm saying all people. We all struggle with this concept when we are dealing with challenges and when we get into this crisis. Oh, it's an emergency. Let's. Let's. What are we going to do now? We run and we, we think that there's going to be like oh a magic pill or a magic you know even if they go to psych ward then it's then they're going to find a path forward and not necessarily is that true there are, but there are times that we need to approach it as an emergency and do what we need to do to save their life keep them alive. Right and it, and that it's very important to differentiate and it's hard to differentiate that, but I can say it's incredibly rare. 
And when I say it's rare, it's almost like if you use this rule, if it's a, if it's a physical danger, that's when it's a crisis. Okay. Yeah, you know I mean, like that's really when you could say, okay, there's actual physical danger. But then you could say, oh, well, he used heroin, so then it's physical danger. Well, he's doing that all the time. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's crisis. So you, you have to really be very, very careful of this thing. And I'll tell you one of the biggest problems with that is that everybody out there, the professionals, I would say everybody, but at least most of them that I speak to, when I say this concept to them, they're not, they, they're not hearing it because their training is deal with this, what we call like the medical model, like a crisis. You go in, we're going we're gonna to patch this up. But, but I do want to address the one thing you said is that, you know, a surgeon always thinks you're supposed to do surgery. I am an addiction specialist. So I am aware of that weakness that I call everything addiction. Um, although I do think everything has addictive qualities to it. So it's not that hard to do. Um, but yeah, of course, this this is across a spectrum of all mental health issues and probably all issues dealing with with these issues uh, have to be dealt with not in crisis. If you're ever dealing with, I, I think I would, this would go across how to raise kids. You don't raise kids like it's crisis. One kid hits another kid. You don't think, uh-oh, this is crisis. No, we have a plan. This is what we do. There's a timeout. There's a this. It's, it's not like, oh, no, now I have a terrible, horrible, beating up kid. We have to deal with this. And Chinuch, we have to deal with that as well, same way. Um, it just, it does that doesn't change when the problems get bigger. And, it, and it, it's very tempting to change. Well, to, to your point about it, um, kind of looking at everything through the lenses of addiction, you know, if we, if we break down addiction as anyone who's studied any part of it or who has experienced it in their life or with their family or with their child or with themselves, you know, fundamentally addiction is I'm numbing something that's bothering me. And that's, that, that's whether it's drugs and alcohol or whether it's playing video games or just ignoring the things that are hurting me. And that's how someone ends up in any kind of crisis. So, well, I, I would I would reframe it a little bit um, the way you're saying it. The fundamental core of all addiction is I am the thought of every person in a, who is struggling with addiction is I am essentially my core is unlovable. That is the core of all addicts that I cannot be loved. I cannot be held. There is no reason to love me. So. Now, when you're talking about the numbing, it's not about numbing. It's what I call an external coping mechanism. So we all reach deep when something hard is happening in our life. We reach deep. We remember the love we got from our mother and our father and our grandparents. And we, we, we have internalized all that love. And we reach in. We use our self-esteem. And we say, yes, this bad thing just happened to me. This person just broke up with me. This, you know, like something bad just happened to me, but I am still special and I have the hope that I can make it through it. And we fight through all those difficult things using that, what I call the love tank, which is that, that power that we could use to be able to soothe our aching heart, let's say, or, or our empty vessel or whatever it is. So, um, the numbing thing is a little bit, a little bit of a misnomer. Like, like it sounds like they could generally handle things, but like we can numb the hard stuff. A real addict, like the real deep addicts that we call addicts, um, they don't have any way to self-soothe at all. 
They just have no way to solve suit. That's why I call addicts big babies. Like they, they are literally at a core level of am I worthy or am I not worthy of living this life? And they discover that there's something from the outside that could give them the illusion of feeling all right. So it's right. a little deeper than what you're saying, but it is the same thing. You understand? Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. And I want to kind of, you are the addiction or addict expert, and that's an amazing conversation. I want to go into that a little bit, but I really want to stay true to the topic that we're talking about today. And this idea that you can you can use this idea in all areas of your life. This is not just when dealing with a child that's struggling, but even in your own in your own situation, when you have things coming up that are difficult. It's interesting. In today's Tanya, um, it talks about this idea that um, nothing that comes from Hashem is bad. So everything ultimately is good, even if we can't see that it's good, but it doesn't feel like it. And actually it's quite the opposite. Sometimes it feels like this is the end of the world. And yet when we apply this concept and say, well, actually it's not the end of the world. This is not a crisis. It's not emergency. We're going to figure a way forward and keep ourselves balanced and calm. We can approach it in even a better way. So I want, I want to ask you, Sonny, how did you come to this um, realization that or was it your experiences that led you to come to this awareness? You know, what is your proof that it's not an emergency and this approach is coming at it from like saying that it's an emergency is not helpful. It's actually quite the opposite. So tell us a little bit about this truth for yourself. I'm going to add to Razel's question because yeah. it's, it's a bit of an epiphany because you're kind of an outlier in this. Most people want to want to make things a crisis and, you know, maybe it's for, for insurance purposes we or whatever. That previously, uh, that uh, is actually for fundraising reasons. But okay. yes. she came, he came up with the same conclusion I did. Yes, yes. All right. Yeah. Um, yes, I am an outlier. I, I'm finding I'm less of an outlier than I thought I was, which is nice to hear because I'm definitely meeting a lot of people nowadays realizing that we are, uh, like, making a lot of mistakes. Um, this has come, I would say 100% or very close to 100% from experience. Because when I was trained, I got, I, you know, went for my KSAC courses, I want to say 25, 26 years ago. So it's a long time ago that that's the beginning of my training. The training was all about crisis mode. It was more about medical model than it was about therapeutic model. It was very, very intensive. We don't know how to deal with addicts. So in my training, my original training was mainly addicts. So I, it was all about crisis. Then when I got into the field, um, everybody in the field um, was, was saying, you know, it was, I was the, I would be, I wasn't an outlier then because I was trying to follow along, but I would have been a complete outlier because everybody was, there was something called therapeutic communities that were very popular then, which is all about tough love and like really, like really, really tough dealing with everything. Like, well, it's a crisis, so we could do whatever we want to help these people. And what I watched was that, yes, very often you dealt with a crisis, you would have very temporary successes and they looked good. So you'd stick someone in a rehab um, or a detox and five days later, they would look great. Or six days later, they would look great. Or in a month later, they look great. But then I stayed in the field too long and that was my problem. And now I'm watching them. They were all right. Hey, that guy sounded and was talking great, um, you know, two months ago. And now for some reason, he's as bad as he ever was or worse. Um, I've had guys go to, I'll give you an example, like a guy came back from being away in Utah for 
four years. Now, just to, I, I don't know if you guys are aware of how much the Utah programs cost, but let's say at that time it was like twelve thousand dollars. The wilderness a month. programs, right? It it wasn't wilderness, but it was a, like a therapeutic community. He was there for four years. His parents yeah. literally, I think they sold their house. It was like they dealt with this, like we gotta fix this right now, and with a lot of love. I I, I I'm not blaming them at all. This kid walked into my program the night he came back after being away for four years looking for drugs. Wow. It wasn't even a day. He was he was forced into a program. He now had no relationship with his parents at all because he's furious that he was basically put in prison for four years um, for, for the crime of trying to sue himself and not understanding why he's being punished. And then he came back. Now, this story sounds like it's, an, it's a one-time story. I saw this hundreds and hundreds of times. And one of the beauties of the program, Our Place, that I ran for so many years is that I got to see them before they were dealing with this stuff. I got them to, to see a while and after. So I would see the whole process. So now I'm watching most people, they work in a rehab. They're like, these guys look great. They send them out into the world and then they forget about them. And then they don't see what I saw, which was um, a year later, all these guys were literally falling on their face. So I'm watching that. Now, I'll give you one more thing, which is that I, um, if I'm talking too long, let me know. No, I've been um, great. <laughs> okay. Uh, we, for a little while, I was under the gun because of some statements I made uh, that were a little controversial and we, our funding was being threatened to be pulled. So we did a, because I was challenging the rehab community on certain things. Um, it, it was connected to this topic. And so we did a research study in our place. It wasn't a very sophisticated research study because it was done within like an hour or two. But we took a hundred guys that we had sent to Israel to, to programs that like yeshivas, not places that dealt with addiction. But every one of those guys that we took, um, we, uh, we were all using drugs and all could have qualified to go to rehab, all of those guys. Um, so we got a hundred guys and then we put three criteria on because we have three criteria of success in our place. So we put three criteria of success on them, which was they have to be uh, dealing with their mental health, sober, they have to be reconnected to their family and somewhat reconnected to their community. Those are three very difficult measures of success. And all we did were the kids who went to Israel. They did not go to any therapeutic program. They didn't do anything. Then I took the group of guys we sent to rehab, which was, um, and, and I lowered it. So the, the, the yeshiva guys, I went to five years. I wanted to see if long-term success exists. And then the rehab guys, I did only one year. I made it lower um, because I wanted to see. From the rehab from just the rehabs, didn't go to any yeshivas or anything like that. I think it was around 21% was, were, were actually just sober. I, I didn't even add those other two criteria on them. I just said, because rehab's goal is sober. Only 21% after a year were actually sober, which are pretty good numbers for rehab community. In the yeshiva things, without any of the therapeutic approach, just dealing with them like regular kids and trying to deal with them, because 82% of those 100 kids were living good lives after five years. It, wow. Now, I can't, now I have followed up on those cases. It has gone down to the low 70s. 
Um, maybe even now it's in the 60s because this is uh, 12 years later or something like that. But um, when I saw these numbers, I mean, I knew them in my head, but when I saw these numbers that these kids weren't dealt with with crisis, they were surrounded by a community, they were, they were getting the help. Some of them had to go to therapy, some of them had to go to a, a little outpatient rehab at some point. So, you know, they had to deal with other stuff. But in general, now, obviously, those last 20 kids probably need to go to rehab. But um, just seeing that and, and constantly seeing the long term lack of success of dealing with this like a crisis, I couldn't I couldn't in good conscience continue to seeing this as a crisis. So it really came from experience of watching, let's look, let's get deeper, let's deal with the family, let's deal with the community, let's deal with, let's really look at this as if this is a regular problem that we need to figure out the answer to. Let's get down to the core of the issue. And that's really where it started. And this so what you're a- saying is, is that from your experience, you have seen that when you approach a to- any issue, you're talking about addiction specifically with struggling teens or young adults, the best thing for them is to approach it not as it's a crisis or the end of the world, but rather go about it in a loving, kind way, treat them like regular people and love them, accept them, help them where you can, help them stay connected, but not necessarily approach it from a crisis mode. Because I don't yeah. think you're against, I don't think you're against rehab. You're making it, you know, it, it's coming no. off that like, because, I, and for me, what, I, when, what came up when you were saying that is in rehab, it's not only a goal to be sober because according to, you know, any of the AA or, you know, all that, you know, material, the whole idea is, is that you're supposed to be spiritually connected in order to stay sober. That helps you stay sober. So it's not just sober. You need to be connected to community and religion and family and in order to um, succeed. So that's, I guess it's two part question for you. Is, is that what you're yeah. saying? Well, I don't, I don't know. I don't remember the two parts, but the rehab piece I do want to address. <laughs> Um, okay. You'll have to tell me if I missed the answer on this. Okay, one. No, it's fine. Um, but the, uh, the rehab, the rehab thing is I, first of all, I'm super pro rehab. I'm all the time signing to rehab. Um, but in a crisis mode, um, rehab is the answer. So I send the kid to rehab and then they're better. That's what you do with a hospital. You send somebody, if someone's got a cash on their side you send them to the hospital they don't send them home and say okay now the next three years this guy's got in the house because he had a gash on the side no you stitch him up you send them home that's how you deal with a crisis the thing with, with what rehabs what rehabs were falling short and the yeshivas were not falling short is that this is a much bigger topic than the fact that this person uses drugs because we could fix the whole drug issue just by taking away drugs from the world. And then, the, then that would fix it. This person has no self-esteem and he needs a huge program, which is going to have to last a period of time. I mean, the crisis is not going to be a period of time. You, when, it's, when you see this as a problem that's been going on for a long time, you need to deal with, and this is why I opened the Sober Living Homes in Muncie, is because I was watching this the, the, the rehab was a great start to something beautiful, but they were dealing with, um, they were dealing with like crisis. Hey, listen, you sent me a kid on drugs. I'm sending you a kid home, not on drugs. And we're going to give him some good things. Go to the 12 steps, uh, speak to this counselor once a week. You know, like you, you have, you have some decent suggestions, but it's not dealing with it. Like it, this is a much bigger issue that probably is going to take a couple of years to really settle down. 
Um, so, so that's my issue with rehab was not, it wasn't that the problem with rehab. My issue with rehab is that the rehabs were still looking at it as a crisis mode. And that they, yeah, they, they said, hey, um, we, we saw you for 30 days. We saw you for 90 days. You're now better. Have a good day. And they give lip service to, okay, we're going to do a little bit more here, a little bit more there, but not understanding that this person is, I was speaking to a parent yesterday and I said, and this is very hurtful to say to this parent, but I said, your son does not have any belief in the world that he is loved. This is a completely abandoned child. He does not believe it. He will test and distrust every human being he lives, he, he meets, and he will, and that this is not something you're going to fix in a rehab. This guy needs hundreds of people around him, surrounding him and saying, we love you, so they could break through this sad place that this kid is in, so they could build him up. And the family's like, hey, listen, I have no more money. <laughs> I, I can't do this anymore. I understand the issue, but the problem is, and I would say to them, listen, maybe if you didn't spend $150,000 on rehabs, you'd have some money to spend on, on a long-term plan. And that's another really big issue. This is a crisis. I got, I got to sell my house to send my kid to a 30-day program because I don't want to send them to a garbage program. It's got to be the best. So now you're not looking at the big issue. You're looking at it as my kid needs surgery today. Let's get it done. I don't know if I dealt with both your questions. Yeah, no, that was good. I, I that definitely so, answered my question. Go ahead. So, so let me let me throw something in over here. You know, I heard Rabbi Shay's Taub, who I'm sure you're quite familiar with, share yeah. that that you know he, he has pretty strong feelings about rehabs as well, and it may not be completely in line with what you just said, but I think the principle is certainly relevant. He says when you send your child to rehab, he said, or or anyone to rehab for that matter, he says at best you're guaranteeing that they stay alive for the duration of the time that they're at rehab, putting a bandaid on it. And, and fundamentally, to your point, you still need to fill that love gas tank. And, and that's to you, that's the, if you're looking at things as crisis mode, then you're right, sell the house, because we are in crisis. You look at it as larger picture, okay, what are we gonna do with this? Um, and the solution really is fill up the gas tank. So you don't need to sell the house. You might wanna approach it from a calmer perspective where you're actually gonna get long-term results and not short-term um, solutions. Right. Okay. I mean, I, I, with the Shays Taub thing, I think there, you know, rehabs could also give you a very deep understanding about the work that's up ahead of you. So yes, I agree with them on that. But you know, like uh, when I, when I, when people do come out of a good rehab, they will come out ready to tackle this problem. And I, I find that to be incredibly helpful, but yeah, it's generally keep this kid sober. Okay, but let's bring this back full circle. So yeah. not, not addiction. I know that, like you said, you know, to, to hammer, everything's a nail. So to yeah. an addiction specialist, everything's addiction. Let's let's bring this into mental health. I don't have where to send my kids to school. No yeshiva's taking my kid. And for a parent, you're like, but I have to go to work. I, how, how am I going to go to work if my kids don't have a school and no school's taking them? Let's make this not sp uh, addiction specific. So you're saying an emergency, so you're saying approaching that, what's your question about that? Oh, no, yeah. How do we apply the, nothing's an emergency model into your regular life in, into other life challenges besides addiction right well so when you're I dealing think, with other struggles right i actually think it's a lot easier because as you're asking the question i think most people um understand that if your kid's not at school you, you don't call the cops on your kid you don't send them to rehab you know what i'm saying like you have no, to no it's true you're saying what because of it's a crisis so people may do things but they may not call the police, but they'll do other things like freak out, 
or scream or yeah. lose their stuff and, and yell at the kids or let it out at their spouse or, you know, you yeah. know, we are overwhelmed with the situation in front of us and how do we deal with it? We start panicking. Right. And right. if you go to a place of fear, mostly, I don't, I can't deal with this. And we go to a place of fear. So I'm saying using that mindset that you shared, this idea that it's not an emergency and that things are going to come work their way out and work their way through using that way of thinking and applying it to everyday life. That's where it has been such a shift for me personally, just, just listening to that. And it, you know what I mean? No, and, you know, and, and I'll throw in one added element to this, just to make this more interesting or Razel mentioned before about today's Tanya's um, section, and I don't, right. I won't accuse you of learning chitas daily, um, but, but this <laughs> spiritually. I missed today. <laughs> today's one of the most important days, but we'll, 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 I'll send you a podcast on that afterwards. But, okay. but spiritually, all of this makes sense because if, if nothing bad comes from Hashem, so everything's good. And spiritually, it's easy to make that tie-in. Well, I know it appears bad, but really it's from Hashem, so therefore it's really good. But practically, I have a crisis in front of me not addiction crisis, I have a crisis in front of me, I'm freaking out, I'm anxious, I'm panicking, and I don't have any practical solutions, and I want to apply the model of, because the truth is, if you look at it 30 days out, we will have found some solutions, something's going to have, have, have landed, right, but, but, but I guess what I'm trying to say is, how do we, how do we find a, this sounds weird, coming from a rabbi and a rabbit, and how do we find a non-spiritual way of explaining this model that you're talking about, because spiritually, we all know, we have a muna, and that's it, but let's, let's yeah. talk yeah, I don't know there's, there's a way to separate this from spiritual because I actually um, I actually believe the definition of spiritual is looking for the bigger picture, something greater than us. Um, so I actually, my the best advice I got, and I'm going to spread your question even bigger because I think this is even more important in relationships, especially husbands and wives. You know, we're constantly killing each other, freaking out about a little thing without looking at the big picture. So uh, the best advice I got was during my Sheva brachas. And I'm giving a little Sheva brachas over here. But my brother had told me this, um, this idea. Then since then, I've thought of a different way. So I'll, I'll just tell you quickly. When I was a kid, I went, uh, I went to this festival or something like that. And I saw this guy making speed paintings. And so he took uh, he took a canvas and he put like a brown background and then he drew a picture on it. And then he did another one with like a yellow background and he did the same exact picture. So on the top, you don't see the background at all. Like everything was covered. Um, but the same exact picture, one was sad and one was happy. It would, you just knew it because the background was a happy background and you just saw a happier, more joyful one. So the advice I got during my Shevachs was, that life is like a painting and you know the the thing that's happening right now is a little piece of that painting um but if you concentrate just on that piece and you don't see the whole grander picture obviously um then you then you can never ever really make a great painting because it's you, you're only focusing on one piece you have to see the whole picture so this is about seeing the whole picture um so i know with my own wife and in my own like I could be a middle, you know, like people, like people say to me all the time, but I'm right with their wife, you know, or with their husband, like I, but I'm right. I'm saying the right thing. So why can't I argue for the right? And then I say, and there's a concept of marriage. It's like, you're dead right. You know, like, great. You, you're right, but you don't have no more marriage anymore. So I know that myself, like one of the things I do consciously, even if I'm arguing with my wife is 
that I think there is a deeper truth. Uh, there is a deeper truth to whatever's happening right now. That deeper truth is that I will spend the rest of my life with this lovely, wonderful woman. And we are, it's me and her against the universe. And all I ever wanted was to share life with this woman. That's the deepest truth. All the other truths are like minor truths. That's like the of truth. This is the like the bainani. It's like a tiny little truth. So yes, right now I could be right. But in the big picture, I would like to be, you know, we're going to, hopefully me and my wife will be 95 years old, changing each other's diapers in a nursing home. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's my plan. So that's the big truth. All other truths don't matter. So when I bring that back to family and raising your kids, the truth is, is that parents and any relatives of a kid, their most, the most important truth is that you have a deep, meaningful relationship with our kid. To lose sight of that, you're going to screw up. So if the kid's in the middle of like, uh, you know, kid gets in big trouble at school and you come home and I, all the stories in the old days, you get smacked in school, you get smacked at home. It's when a kid gets in trouble in school and you're freaking out, oh, you're about to get kicked out, you're going to get in trouble. All that's true, but there's a bigger truth. If that kid does not have their parent behind them and loving them and filling their tank, they're not going to make it later on in life. They need this deep, meaningful connection. So when you're looking at all situations, addiction is obviously the most confusing because it seems like a crisis. But even like situation, I get phone calls all the time from parents about situations like the, my, my daughter is having a relationship with, with a boy and I got to figure out what to do with it. And, I, and I'll listen and I understand the crisis idea of it. And but something got you know, I understand. I said, but ultimately your daughter is going to have to make very deep, difficult decisions in her life. And the only thing that's going to matter is your relationship with her. When she thinks of her father, you know, like that story with Yosef, he saw his father in the window. That is what gives us the strength to be able to make the proper decisions in difficult situations. So you can't, you, so to start looking at this as the crisis is missing the, the big picture. And the big picture is always about the relationship. So this could be applied to any Every, part of so, your life. So what I'm hearing you say is that if you stay true to your bigger vision, if you stay true in each situation, if you focus on what is true here, what is my goal here? What is my ultimate goal? It's not about um, getting this kid to break up with her boyfriend or getting this kid to get into that school. It's actually about ultimately staying connected with this child. This child has a good relationship with his parents in that situation. In, e in, in each scenario, remembering what it is that is your most important value here and then let that guide you. And, and having that concept of it's not an emergency kind of goes with that as well. It's similar right. to the idea of, um, which my husband mentioned, the 10-10-10 rule. I'm sure you've heard of it. Like you apply that idea when you're, you have a situation, you say, okay, is this going to be an issue in 10 years? Is this going to be an issue in 10 months? Likely in 10 minutes. And you apply that idea long-term. Right. I, I did it actually the opposite, 10 minutes, 10 months, 10 years. And you realize that most things you're not even going to remember in 10 months that happened. And right now it feels so big, but ultimately it, it decreases in size as we go along with life. So I think that's a really good point. I have one more question to ask you. Yeah. Do you think that one has to go through a difficult situation or go through huge challenges in life to come to this? I've seen a lot of struggle, seen a lot of challenge. I can tell you it's not an emergency. Most situations are not emergencies. And if it's emergency, call 911. Do you think that you have to go through challenges first to get to that awareness? 
let me throw some frosting on that yeah. one. I think, you know, we know each other. So, you know, a lot of, of what we've been through and frankly, probably almost 90, 95% of people you deal with are people that you've interacted through some very difficult times. So when you've really been to the ringer, this makes so, so much sense. And it's so easy to apply this. But a lot, most people, at least their first go round of whatever the crisis is, they're completely clueless and they're so blindsided that to try to teach this concept when they when they're hitting their first real severe crisis, they're they're in such a state of panic and anxiety and deer in the headlights that that it's like because this works when you can talk to the rational brain when the rational when the rational brain is offline, can this still work? I guess is the question. No, so you're making it deeper. You're saying it's not like just can you really well you're you're not even online. Can you apply this concept? Do you have to be online? Is that what you're saying? Uh, uh, right, right, I'm adding to that. Another, right. Right, fine. So, right, Razel split it into two questions. Right. One is, one is, do you have to have gone through a crisis? Number two is, as you're going through the crisis and your brain really isn't working, how can I apply this, or can I apply this? Okay, so I'm gonna do. I'm gonna answer those questions backwards. But I, uh, first of all, like, there's an awesome quote from Dr. Abraham, Dr. Rabbi Abraham Tversky, um, Sham, and he said, uh, he said. People, people in religious, religious people are going to hell and spiritual people are people that have already been there. Love so, that. Hold on. Religious people are going to hell and I don't know spiritual people have been there. Have already okay. been. There. Wow. Have already um, been there. So this lesson that I'm telling you seems so natural to you because, because you've been to hell. I don't know how to say it. Meaning the answer is a little bit yes. Like when everything's going nice and then all of a sudden something bad happens, you panic. You do not know what to do. But now let's say I'll give an example. With all the difficulties you went through with, with one of your children, let's say, all of a sudden another kid uh, was clits with dick in school. You're like, well, thank God. <laughs> that doesn't seem so bad. Because you're like, you are forced to see the bigger picture when you are when when you have been into such an incredibly difficult situation you're like wait a minute that was a really difficult situation and we're making our way out of it like everything else does not seem so important because all i want is my child and i love them and i just want them to be alive and special and healthy you don't you're not you're not happy you're totally happy with a, just a happy kid you know it takes a lot more, oh, it takes a lot more to trigger you almost like you automatically are a spiritual person. You're looking at a bigger picture. You're like, wait a minute. I really cared which yeshiva my kid went to, but now I had a kid that may have died. And I don't really care what yeshiva goes to. I just want to be alive and well. And then you start, you know, doing that everywhere else in your life. I've seen, I've seen relationships get better because of this. I've seen some people miss it and they keep dealing with it like a crisis. And then, and then they're in trouble. Right. So you're, what you're describing is post-traumatic growth. There you go. All right. Yeah. So I try so to I, any fancy words. <laughs> so basically, you, you are saying you're agreeing that it's usually people that have been through the ringer that could um, actually say these words that it's not really an emergency, and if it's an emergency, call nine one one. Otherwise, yeah. you really have to have been through something to to apply this, and and, and this is true. And I will say. Um, when I first got married to Nehemiah, my father-in-law, who is just like Mr. Calm in crisis mode, 
And I remember looking like, he's, he's like, I don't understand. Like, does he just not have feelings? Does he not think? And I've, I've come, I, I, I think the words were cold, heartless. <laughs> and I've come to appreciate, I mean, and he went through some really challenges in life where he lost his wife at, at the young age of 36, leaving him with 11 children. So he's been through yeah, hell and back. Um, basically nothing bothers him after and, that and so, or no, no, nothing freaks him out. After right. That. And, I, and I would be like, right. well, what, this is happening. How are you not like worried? Like, cause it's not an emergency reason. And I'd be like, he's just, he's just crazy. And, and like, at this point in my life, at the age of 43, I've come to absolutely respect him even more and understand that, well, he's been through that experience and this is what he now knows to be his truth. So I guess we're agreeing that you need to go through. So what about people that no, are no, listening? No, 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 that, wait, I have one more point. Let, let, let's ask Sonny. So, so are you saying, Sonny, that yeah. unless you've been through the crisis, it's harder, if not impossible, to, to apply this philosophy? Well, there's a couple of pieces. Let me let me add a couple of pieces. I don't know how long we have. I could go for as long as you want, but it's <laughs> it's uh, there's also a big lie going on, and there's a big lie. When I'm saying that statement that the most important thing is that you have a relationship with your children, it might sound all right to you, but the world is not saying that. Meaning, we say if there's a problem, we get them a therapist, we get them the right school, we get them the right. We have been convinced that the most important thing is to get some professional to fix our kid and some professional to help us with this problem and that problem and this thing. Now, that's one piece. The other piece I think is a total disaster is it used to be you had old people living in every house. You always had a grandparent living in a house. Grandparents all know this. Everybody wonders why somebody could sit in a, they've all been through hell. Like if you lived your life till 70, you've been in hell and out. Like something bad has happened in your life and they are like, they're looking at all these panic situations that a 27-year-old parent or a 30 or 40-year-old parent is like, I don't know what to do. And they're like, ah, it's all right. In the camps, everybody was dying. You know what I'm saying? I mean, to say that. <laughs> but I'm saying like, there, there, was, there was a beauty and an understanding that all you really, really deeply needed was at home. And you had this calmer experience. Now, some of the parents, grandparents, I wouldn't say they were all great. But the idea of somebody around that's like, look at the big picture. I'm still alive. I lost four kids and I'm still living alive. You know, like they, they, so there's a conversation right now. And this is, if you want to talk about one of the things that drives me crazy is that there's only two parents raising kids now at best, meaning a divorce, forget it. What I'm saying is it used to be, there was some sort of village around a kid. And you you depended on that village to help you. Like when you were yelling at your kid, you knew that they would go to that grandmother and sit around while she knits and complains about you. And there was a little bit more of a village going on. And now it's just two of us and we don't know what to do. So we're running around trying to get some professional. And then every professional tells you another way to do it. And the answer is at home. So when I'm saying something that's a my premise is that the most important thing in this painting is that the relationship with you and your kid is the most important thing. That's not an obvious premise to everybody, even though they may nod and say, yeah, I, I guess I agree. They're like, no, but what about the school? And what about the, this and the therapist? And they, they, they uh, he's it's got to get a better IOP and a better this and a better this. And the truth is the most important thing. And, and, the, my big focus in the sober living is like I'm super serious about making sure that they get reconnected to their families and like that's a big part of my process is because the answer is already at home there's been a problem and it needs to be fixed now sometimes 
once in a while, but I find it very rare, believe it or not, the parents can't love their children. And in those cases, they need alternate families, they need all that stuff. But I, I've very rarely seen this. In the earlier days, I used to think parents were all the problem and all that. And now it's like the parents are the solution. If you could just get out of your head and trying to fix your kid and make a relationship with them, then you'd be able to do it. But I think it's understanding that premise, that premise that that is the most important thing. And it's not so obvious in our society today. Okay, you'll you'll forgive me for drilling down. So coming back to that question yet again, can someone who's not been to hell um, learn these principles? If I'm understanding you correctly, what you're saying is, once upon a time, the aged, saged, experienced, elderly figure in the home was that calming presence so the parents didn't have to go to hell for that idea to be transmitted to the parents and then to the, to the, family, to the family body or to the village, as you call it. Whereas yeah. now, we don't have that so much, and therefore, we default to freak out. And, uh, and maybe, I don't know, if we connect it to a Rav or some elderly figure, if we, the parents connected to now we would maybe be able to mimic some of that village element is that accurate it, it is it is accurate that you really uh, the people i see that are getting very deep and spiritual and able to see the bigger picture of life do seem to come from people that have suffered um so i wouldn't argue with that statement um i do think some people haven't naturally they just understand but it's also understand the concept that um life is not fair and life is hard and life is going to be all this stuff and that's fine um is a concept that we don't really have in our society anymore so it's very hard to uh to to all of a sudden develop this idea that this is a much bigger picture without actually getting you know gone to hell you know what i'm saying and then you're like whoa okay now i see I can tell you this, you know, all it took is me to have, I could preach and preach and preach, but I, as soon as I had a kid that was struggling, um, all of a sudden, nothing seems to matter anymore. Like nothing. Like, I don't care. You don't like, oh, but he's gonna go to that school and it's not got a reputation. I don't care. They're gonna love him in that school. It's not like, I don't, it, like things like bounce off of me that would have, as a young parent, driven me crazy. Yeah, you go through a little bit of hell and it helps. But here's a secret. Almost everybody goes through hell. <laughs> so it's, you don't everyone's going to learn so this much. lesson at some point. Yeah. Well, you got to learn that, the lesson, though. And uh, you do. And I think that when people hear it, it's while they're in a crisis. And I'll say that you have said this to us like your calming presence. You need to be that calming presence for your child. You need to be the adult. You need to be. And in, and in each situation, it's just. You have to respond in calmness. And I think when we are calm, when we accept this idea ourselves and say, it's not an emergency, I'm going to be calm. My child's going to see my calmness and it, it, it all kind of impacts each other. And I know like for some people, you know, I, I know someone who's struggling with their own child and when they are dealing with that child. So a lot, in the beginning, they felt like I have to go I have somebody, I need somebody to fix this for me. I need to go to the hospital. I need to go here. And then they realize that like, you know, you go to the hospital and they, their job at the hospital is actually to keep your child alive. It's not to heal the child. It, that happens, like you said, at home. And I think that reality, that awareness is something that we're all coming to, but it's so hard. It's so hard for a parent to hear like, oh, I'm the one that's healing my child. Like it feels very, I don't know the word, 
choking or overwhelming, but it's a lot. It's a lot to deal with to think about that. So I think for a long time, it was nice to think, oh, somebody else could help me with this. Somebody else could fix this for me. Oh, I have to do this work. And it's it can feel overwhelming. But at the same time, when you apply the idea, it's not an emergency. We're going to get through this. We're going to be okay. And somebody else can say that for you and say that to you. It's very, it's very helpful. Yeah, well, I'm going to say an irony here is that even though that's hard, what you're saying, it's hard to be able to feel that responsibility. I have never found a parent who doesn't take responsibility for screwing up their kids. They are all <laughs> blaming them. They, everybody believes they're, they're the most important person in terms of why their kid's a mess, but they have a hard time translating that to, yeah, um, <laughs> you, you guys don't believe it. No, I, I, do, so, I hear what you're well, saying. You we all blame ourselves. We sit around and we're like, oh, if I did this better and if I did this better and if I went there better and I fixed them and if I you know what I'm saying? Parents are very, they understand, but they don't look at it and go, well, there's a flip side to this. I'm also the solution. Like, even if you could believe that, which I don't think is true because there's so much, there's a multitude of issues that lead to people struggling and it's not just the parents, but we blame ourselves. I know with my kids, I, I constantly, it's the automatic thing. Oh man, if I did this, like if I just put another filter, I could have triple filtered the phone and then he would have been perfect. You know, like that's right. how we think. But we also, we have to use that, which I think it's, it's not a fully false idea. There's some truth to it. And we have to use that on the flip side. Yeah, okay. We're also the most powerful beings in this kid's life under God. Meaning, and and we're the ones who are in the world making a difference in this life. So we have to act the way God would act with this kid. So now that's, we're the representatives, right? So that's what I'm saying. It's funny that you say it that way because I have never met a parent who doesn't have, a, who, who was like, yeah, I, I did perfect parenting and uh, this kid's a mess and like, do it. Yeah. We all you're saying, you're saying if, if we're strong enough or we're important enough to mess them up, then we're certainly strong and important enough to help fix them. Yeah, a hundred percent. And they're both true statements. So, like, so let's wrap this up. Let me ask you a final question. So if you know, if you were talking to a parent right now who has struggled, whatever it may be, a child or a um, with not necessarily addiction, only mental health or whatever it is, like a real challenge in front of them with their child or loved one, wherever it is, what would you, what would be the one thing you would recommend or suggest, or what would be the line that you would tell them to support them? 100% the parents are the most important piece of this puzzle. That's number one. Um, it, it really, really is. Um, and to explain that a little better, when somebody and anybody who's struggling, and this doesn't have to do with addiction, when somebody is feeling empty, they need their parents to fill them. And I call it like uh, borrowing hope. Like we do not have hope sometimes in life. We just feel completely hopeless. And if there are people, our parents specifically, and I would add uncles, aunts, brothers, I get very upset when uncles and aunts and all these people are not involved. And it's not upset because it, this world doesn't really allow it anymore. But I take my uncleness very seriously, like with my nieces and nephews. But when somebody is feeling down, I don't care if it's a nine-year-old kid suffering from a dis like a learning disability, or if it's a 23-year-old that's got a heroin addiction, those people are both feeling so empty and hopeless, like there is no way to go. And when that happens, we have one place to get it from. 
pretty much. And that's the people that love us. And we can look at them and say, oh, that person still loves me. I'm going to suspend my disbelief for a minute that I hate myself and that I'm unlovable. And I'm going to borrow from those people and be able to feel that love. If you ever take that away from them, they have nothing to borrow from. So what I'm saying is, in any situation, understand, and parents should go out and they should advocate for their kids and, you know, be, be on top of it. Realize that anybody who ever tries to chop them away from their kids is literally taking away that connection to hope that people make to make it through life. And all these people are struggling. We're all struggling to make it through life. And if we don't have that, those people supporting us, namely the parents and all relatives, um, we're not going to have th those people are not going to have the strength to make those strong, powerful decisions to make their lives better. So I, I, my my message is you're the most important person. If you're talking to the parents like you, you know it. It's no, no, it's, it's, it's really powerful stuff. And you can feel free to cut this out. But I just had a little understanding based on on this whole conversation that you're having. The, like I said, this section of Tanya that, that is talked about, it's talked about in the world of Hasidic uh, people who study the, the Alter Rebbe's works. The Haskil Chabina is one of the toughest sections because the Alter Rebbe is basically saying there's no such thing as a bad thing. And every, everything that you have that's really, really difficult, it's really good. If you can peel out the outer layers, it's really good at its core. And, you know, obviously that's really, really hard when someone's dealing with like a crisis, some loved one passes away or something, you know, very serious. But the truth is, is the post-traumatic growth that happens as a result of it, if you can dig deeper and suddenly you're no longer living life in a, in a, in a freak out, you know, kind of every situation is a crisis situation, you really do end up much calmer in the final analysis. Now, we may not understand, it, it may not be worth the price in our mind, like why did I have to go through that crisis to reach this le level of calm? But the reality is, is that's something positive that came out of something that's very, very difficult. So it kind of gives a deeper understanding to what the Alter Rebbe is teaching. All right, but that's a, the Dvar Torah section. I like that. It, it, okay. No, it's amazing Dvar Torah because the truth is if we really, and this is hard to see in our own lives, but every time something great has happened, if you think back to it, there was a real struggle right before. You know, like there, there was, it was really, really tough right before then. And we didn't see it. And then we're like, oh, we made that career change. We made the, you know, you made the podcast. I'm saying I, I'm, I'm throwing it out there. But you've yet to think of everything that uh, that happens. If you look back at it, you see it as, oh, I overcame this incredibly difficult challenge. And now, now something good came out of it. But it's a mean thing to say to people. I'm going to say, I try not to say this to people while they're going through something. I'm like, yeah. watch, it's going to be good. I don't do that. But it, if we look back at our lives, it really is good. I also have one more thing that I think all the time, which is everything I've ever been anxious about throughout my whole life, which is so many things, is all over. It, it all happened. And I'm not anxious about it. I'm anxious about something new now. But it <laughs> right. will, like, yeah, I would say, like, and I take it so seriously. Why are you taking it so seriously? Every single thing is over already. It right. may have been a terrible thing, but it's over and you haven't thought about it. We even laugh about some of them after a while. So don't take ourselves so seriously also. You know, if you're looking at a big picture, don't take yourself so seriously. I'm having this thought right now. I'm just feeling right now. I think this is a little bit of American culture. What I feel right now is truth. And it must be dealt with right at this moment. Well, look at your full life. Does it really matter what you're thinking right now? Maybe a blip.
Anyway. Right. Okay, so it's all on the same topic. This this has been really insightful and really helpful. Do you have any uh, short story or example that you have where you kind of applied this idea or share this with another person or a parent or, you know, and you've seen how effective it can be? I'll give you a story early on in my career because I don't know if I was right or wrong, but it was a fascinating story. Um, but I had this uh, couple came in and they had one kid who was completely belligerent. He's maybe 17, 18 years old. And... Um, and there was a lot of things we were dealing with a lot of things i was young and whatever but i this was insight that i think came from god so uh, i'll tell it so the kid uh one of the things the kid would do when they when they when they would upset the kid and he didn't get his way is he he figured out that in the kitchen um they had a fifty thousand dollar countertop um in their house i don't know expensive stuff that's like my whole house but they had this countertop right and um, the kid ripped it off the top and he would do this like on a, every time he didn't get it, he ripped it off the top of the counter. So it wasn't like glued down anymore. And he would say, I'll drop this. I'm assuming you're dropping like stone. It's going to break. I'll drop it if I don't get it. And the kids and they would freak out. They didn't know what to do. So I said to them this idea, I said, listen. I said, how much is your kid worth? Like, if you want to sell me your kid now, like how much would you sell me your kid for? And they're like, oh, that's a stupid question. Uh, like, I, there's no, no. So I said, is your kid worth at least $50,000? And they're like, yeah, well, they, they, they paused a little. But uh, <laughs> like, that's tuition for you. So um, they, they uh, I would just ask the obvious questions. And um, I said, this is what you have to say. You say, if you need to drop that counter, you drop the counter. You are worth so much more to me than this $50,000 counter. If you need to break this counter, break the whole kitchen, break the whole, you could break the whole house. There is, there is no number that you, that's worth to me. So if you need, if that's what you need to do right now, do your thing. And they said, they, they agreed to do it and they did it. And I'm, I'm talking about an immediate success. First of all, that's the best way to break a tantrum is you, you don't give in. But what I'm saying is their whole relationship changed from there because they just saw the perspective. Like, why am I freaking out about every tiny little situation when this kid is worth millions of dollars? So you, he so he breaks the car, he breaks this. Who cares? What do you mean? I would literally pay a million dollars right now to give him a heart surgery that he needs. I mean, that idea, what like it got through to them and their relationship changed, literally pivoted as of that day, like a one-time pivot. And, and it got better. And I'm really proud of them. They did awesome. And kids doing well today. And, a, you know, great story. But it's a long time ago. But I don't know where I got the insight to, to put it that way. But a parent that is able to see the big picture like that or a person in a relationship is able to see a big picture like that, in the big picture, there's no crisis. It's just they don't exist. Yeah, okay, you gotta go to the hospital, you come home. Think about all the times you went to the hospital to get stitches for your kid. Did it affect their lives? I mean, it's a little bit, there's a little crisis here, a little crisis there, but that's not the big picture. So crisis is never looking at the big picture. It's honing in on the tiny, tiny little dots. And it's missing the, it's missing the point. So this topic, I'm glad you picked this topic to talk to me about because I'm super passionate about it. And, I know, uh, and it we, we run all our programs based on it. And it comes through. It really does. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, Shimon Russell has a similar story with plates and and dropping the plates uh, that he talks about that a fight that a teenager had with their parent and how he he was threatening to break or something about the plates. I don't remember the exact detail, but something similar that I'm going to love you more than I ever will ever I can ever hate you. Yeah. Oh really? Um, yes. So maybe this is not my memory. This is Shimon. No, no, no this is a different okay, story. Okay, right. <laughs> it's a different story completely. But no, it, it was a great. I story. think he stole I, it from I, me. <laughs> I think the punchline was that the kid broke, you know, some really fancy china and right. the parents freaked out and kicked him out of the house. Right. And his way to lure the kid back home was they brought the kid back home. Shim and Russell brought him back home and the mother kept on breaking plates of china until the kid finally said, Mom, so I believe until he learned that I love you more than I love plates or yeah. the china or whatever it was. Right. But it's to your point. But it's a little different because here right. the child was actually like threatening and they were like, you know, it's a little the tantrums and a different age and all that. But anyway, Sonny, thank you so much for your time and for your willingness to come on. This has been so insightful. It was great to be here. So thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you have some stories or examples of any of the discussion that we discussed today of this topic, please feel free to share with me. You can reach out through my website at positivecoach.com or you can email me at razel at jewishpeabody.com. Thank you so much and I'm wishing you a wonderful day.